And what a prayer. What a request that we would see with our eyes the glory of God revealed in Christ Jesus. That is our prayer together this morning. Amen? Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, guys. And uh, thank you, Kyle, for resurrecting the song Refuge. We're just going to bring that one back from the, the archives and put that into the rotation. Hope you don't mind. Uh, even if you do mind, we're going to do it anyway. So uh, it's a good one. We're glad, uh, glad to sing it. Char- Charlie and I were talking about, like, we're really excited to sing that again. So there you go. We're going to keep singing it. Uh, welcome and good morning. Um, We've come humbly as beloved children of our Heavenly Father to confess our sin, to exalt in the name of Jesus who has secured our forgiveness, and to be challenged and encouraged by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through God's Word, the Bible, the Scriptures, so that we might grow in our faith, that we might be equipped for every good work, and in just a few minutes from now that we might be sent back into the world, the places where we live and work and learn as ambassadors of the gospel, as lights in dark places. And to what is fast becoming a favorite phrase around here, so that we might, by God's grace, trash the kingdom of darkness. (laughs) This is why we've gathered this morning. So welcome. Last week we started a new series in the Psalms, entitled God's Sovereign Kingdom, Leaving Exile and Returning to God. We talked about how the Psalms are divided out into 150 different chapters and collected into five distinct books. In this series, we're working through book four of the Psalms, one by one, from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. And this fourth book focuses on the maturing of God's people, expanding their vision of what God's kingdom should look like. And so our prayer for our study here in the Psalms is that our faith in Christ is strengthened That our understanding of what it means to belong to Him, to live in Him, is deepened as we seek to follow where God is leading us as a people and as a local church. So grab your Bibles, if you will, and we're going to be in Psalm 91. If you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up and someone from our strike team can put one in your hands. The, The words for Psalm 91 will also be on the screen. We'd love for you to follow along Psalm 91 this morning. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Psalm 91, starting in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. 
I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word, the beauty of your word, the timeliness of your word. Would you help us now by the Holy Spirit to understand And would you, Holy Spirit, apply this to our hearts and lives that we might uh, grow in our faith, grow in our trust of you? Would you help me this morning to keep me from error and out of the way that you might do your work in building up and equipping and encouraging and challenging your people? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to highlight a date for you. If you are history buffs, this date will be familiar. June 6th, 1944. I was talking with a pastor friend this week, and and he shared with me a story of of one of his mentors. There's a man by the name of Dr. John Cummer who served in the U.S. Navy during World War II. And on June 6th, 1944, just before sunrise, U.S. and Allied forces crossed the English Channel and landed in northern France for an assault on the Nazi army that had invaded and controlled most of Western Europe at that time. John was an ensign in the U.S. Navy and was piloting a transport boat that would land on the beaches of Normandy. Before he left for war, his mother told him that she would be praying Psalm 91 for him every day. And John recounted that as they landed... On the beach, and in the minutes and hours that followed, that psalm came alive to him as literally hundreds of his brothers in arms fell around him. The words of Psalm 91 echoed in his mind on that day and for years and years after, that although many fell, the Lord would preserve him. And in the midst of horror and death, He truly felt that he was safe in the shadow of the Almighty on that day. You see, part of what makes Psalm 91 so good is that the psalmist doesn't pretend that pain doesn't exist. It isn't just platitudes that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Psalm 91 casts a really wide net that there's a reality to sin. There's a reality to sin of temptation, of hardship, and judgment. And then Psalm, makes, Psalm 91 makes the case that indeed God is the one who will rescue. God is the one who will redeem. God is the one who will protect and provide. That God truly is a refuge in times of trouble. That He hears us when we call. And that He calls us to hold fast to Him as He holds fast to us all the way to the end. We started last week in Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, that served as kind of an introduction to Book 4, where God's people are are coming out of a time of exile and into a time of an expanding vision for what does God have for us? What is this kingdom that He's building, that He's calling us to? Now, Psalm 91 doesn't list an official author, but because it has some similarities in the Hebrew with Psalm 90, some, some early scholars think, well, it could be a continuation of of Moses' thought, but it could just as easily be a psalm that 
it was written in a similar style in, in order to help kind of pair really well with the things that God was teaching His people. And Psalm 90, so, and that's regularly found throughout the Psalms, especially in the anonymous ones. Either way, Psalm 90 and Psalm 91 pair well together. There's kind of a continuation of thought here in Psalm 91. If God is our dwelling place, Psalm 90, we can be sure, Psalm 91, that He will for sure protect us. So for us as Christians, we specifically rest in Jesus Christ. He's the embodiment of God's protection for us as the central reality, the literal fulfillment of God's love and care for us is Jesus. And so we're being told and led through Psalm 91 that it's Jesus Christ who quiets our fears and He Himself is our safe retreat. So the title I'm using for today's sermon is this, Psalm 91, The Shadow of the Almighty, pulled right from the text, that God's protection for His people will never fail. Full stop. It will never fail. In Christ, we are, we are secure. Now, Psalm 91 has three distinct kind of sections to it. Maybe you heard that. There's some different voices going on here. Verses 1 and 2 seem to come from the psalmist himself, kind of giving testimony. This is what God has done making a, a kind of a declarative statement. Verses 3 through 13, the voice changes and it's kind of directed outward. Verses 1 and 2 are like, this is what I'm testifying about who, who God is and what He's done. He's my refuge. Starting in verse 3, He goes, and for you, God will do these things. He will protect you in these ways. He will deliver you in these ways. And then in verse, verses 14 through 16, at the end, the voice changes again and and this time, it's from God's perspective. It's, it's God's own voice assuring His people, I will deliver you. I will protect you. And I think we need to hear all three voices. We need to hear it from all three perspectives as we grow in our faith to more deeply trust in Christ as our refuge. And we can hear the testimony of the psalmist. We can consider and receive the exhortation, the challenge he's giving us. And we need to hear from God Himself the reminders that He indeed does love us. So that we too, looping all the way back around, that then we can add our voice like the psalmist in verses 1 and 2 to say, He is my refuge and my fortress. I trust in Him too. So let's start in verses 1 and 2. Point 1 this morning is the names of God we need to know. See, beautifully set in these first two verses are four distinct names of God. Now, and, and I don't think this is the psalmist's exercise in thesaurus usage. How can I say God four different ways to make myself sound smart? If you've written a paper anytime in the last ever, you know what I'm talking about, right? I lived in my thesaurus in college. How can I not say that word the same way again, right? That'll show them. I don't think that's what the psalmist is doing here, right? In fact, there's some uniqueness to each of the four distinct names of God that the psalmist uses. And here they are. He says, uh, Most High, Almighty, Lord, which we'll talk about here in a second. And then he says, My God. And we're going to look at each one briefly. Most High. This is the Hebrew word Elyon, or the Most High is El Elyon. It means supreme surpassing all others, the Lord 
most high. El Elyon is above all. Most high. The, the name Almighty is the Hebrew word for Shaddai, or the Hebrew word Shaddai. The Lord Almighty is El Shaddai. It means omnipotent or all-powerful. And inherent in this name Shaddai is the idea that nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible for the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. And then, uh, intermixed in this, he says, uh, he who dwells in the shelter of El Elyon, in the Most High, that word dwell is remain, right, to stay, and the word abide has connotations of rest. So there's this, this, this sense of belonging and place and rest and security in the shelter of the Most High, in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 2, the psalmist continues, says, I will say to the Lord, and when you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D in capitals in your English translation, t- typically what's happening there is the translators are taking the Hebrew name Yahweh, the name God gave himself, when Moses says, who do I tell them is, is sending? Who do I tell them you are? And he says, I am. The I am, Yahweh, the name that God gives himself. When you see that L-O-R-D in capitals in your Bibles, that's typically the word that's being translated is Yahweh. The great I am, the one true God, the Lord. And finally, he says, my God in whom I trust. And the name God here is Elohim. God, the, the, the maker and creator of the universe. And unique here is this article of possession. He's not only God, Elohim. The psalmist says he's, he's my God. So here, verses 1 and 2 might be able to be restated like this. I live under the protection of El Elyon, the most high God. And I remain under the covering of El Shaddai, always the Lord Almighty. Yahweh, the great I am, is my refuge and my strength. Elohim, the God who created all things. He is my God, and I trust in Him. That's quite the statement that the psalmist makes in verses 1 and 2. And so to open up this psalm, the psalmist is is kind of laying this foundation that all the promises of God's protection and rescue are built upon this sure foundation. This is who God is. These are His names. So for us, for me, the challenge is to actually know God according to these names. Do we know God as supreme among all others? Or is God in our minds and in our actions just one of many? Do we know Him him as all-powerful? The one for whom nothing is impossible. Do we know Christ as the one true God, the I Am? When asked, on what authority do you heal, Jesus? On what authority do you do these miracles? Do you preach the way you do? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Even the name Emmanuel, the, the one, the Messiah who comes to us to live and be with us, God with us. So the first part is a deepening of our trust in God as our safe retreat according to who He actually is, not who we think He is, not a God in our own making, the parts of God we like. No, no, according to who He really is. 
That's the first part. It's important for the psalmist and for us to know God according to his own names. Point two is this, moving from three and down, where the psalmist now starts to outline this is what the protection of God, this is what living under the shadow of the Almighty looks like in real time. This is the safety that God provides. And in poetic language, the psalmist uh, outlines a variety of things from which we need protection and deliverance. Let's look at these here. He says, uh, I'll deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence, the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. Here, pestilence comes back. Yea, pestilence. The destruction that wastes at noonday. Thousands, thousands fall all around. The lion and the serpent, dangerous creatures. See, all kinds of trouble can be found in one of these descriptors. And the psalmist is kind of poetically giving a picture of temptations and trials, of sin and judgment, and and even the work of Satan himself who seeks to destroy. These are the things, the psalmist says in broad terms, these are the things and the types of things from which we need to be rescued. A fowler, maybe that word is unfamiliar to you. It literally is just a hunter who's hunting and trapping his prey, specifically fowl, birds. So bird hunters, right? There are traps and snares set for prey. The parallels, there's traps and temptation and snares set for us at all times. Pestilence, which comes up twice, right? It's not a word we use very often. Think of plague and disease. Again, for you history nerds, you know, think the Middle Ages and the Black Plague. Even in our present day, we have some people right here at River City who have spent considerable time in faraway places holding the hands of people who are dying of terrible disease and just lovingly walking with them. The idea of pestilence brings a sense of not only pain, but despair and dread, the inevitable. The terror of the night and the arrow that flies by day, the fear of what is unknown in the dark. This is almost like the the actualization of the boogeyman you feared as a child or the monster that lived under the bed. The fear of, I don't know what's there, but I think something's there. There's a terror, a fear that remains And even the arrow that flies by day, it's like you see them coming and yet there's nothing you can do. Constant danger. Day or night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, this picture here is one of a variety of trials, temptations, sin, and judgment. But I ask, what does that look like for us today? I don't think any of us is in great fear of accidentally stepping in a bear trap today. Maybe you are. I doubt it, right? So what are the dangers and temptations that draw you in? And then, snap, then you're caught. We're probably not talking about a physical trap, physical snares. But there are indeed, if we're honest with ourselves, there are indeed traps and snares, temptations and dangers for us every day. Some physically and a whole lot spiritually and emotionally, right? What man-made dangers are, are waiting for you? 
What are the terrors and the fears that stalk you and keep you up at night? What pestilence is gnawing at you, your literal physical body or someone you love, causing despair? It's okay to answer that question. Because for every one of us, it might be a little bit different. And the psalmist is saying, these are real realities. And in these very real things, the psalmist says, God promises to deliver you. He will deliver you. He will be your refuge. He will cover you, and you'll be safe. Look again at verses 7 and 8. He says, A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only see the recompense of the wicked. As an aside, recompense is a really great word that we don't use very often. It means kind of a restitution that the offender makes as a, as a payment. Um, so, so the idea here in this case, the psalmist is saying, in the end, despite all the death, we will see, your eyes will see justice for the righteous and justice for the wicked. Verses 9 and 10, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, quoting again, Verses 1 and 2, he says, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Verses 11 and 12, For, this is how God, the psalmist says, God will act. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. God employs angels, heavenly beings, to guard you, to care for and protect his own. The imagery here is almost that you, you won't even stub your toe. And so at this point, I want to pause. Because if you're not asking the question yet, I'm going to help you ask it. Is it really true that no evil shall come to us? Like, living life for five minutes and we go, I don't know about that. Right? No plague or pestilence will ever come near our tent. That even though many may fall around us, that it will never affect us. That God's angels will protect me from all harm? I mean, how literally should we read this? Not every story is like that young ensign in the Navy. Where everyone else falls in, he's preserved. Let me give you another date. January 8th, 1956. There's a man by the name of Jim Elliott. Had been preparing for years with a team to reach a small tribe of indigenous peoples called the Warani in the jungles of Ecuador with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had not received the gospel. And on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint were speared to death on a beach by a small group of Warani warriors. Does this mean that God failed to protect Jim and the team of missionaries? Were they outside from underneath the shadow of the Almighty? Did God's promises fail? Jim's wife, Elizabeth, later wrote a book called In the Shadow of the Almighty. You should read it. It's really good, by the way, about the life and work of her husband. And that title was not a mistake. She wrote this, God's refuge for His people is not from suffering and death, but from ultimate, final and ultimate defeat. She continued, the world called it a nightmare of tragedy, what happened on the beach. 
But the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim Elliot's credo. This is one of the quotes he's most famous for. It was in his journal years before they, this event happened. Jim Elliot says this, he, who, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The world didn't understand that. And so here's the caution for us as we lean into Psalm 91. We can and should be, hear me clearly, we can and should be all in on our faith of God's protection for us. And we must acknowledge that hardship still comes. These are not mutually exclusive, God's protection and our trials. So we need to be careful to not use Psalm 91 the way Satan, our enemy, uses Psalm 91. And here's what I mean by that. In Luke chapter 4, after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, he is led by the Holy Spirit of God out into the wilderness where he fasts and he is there and he is tempted by Satan. Satan tempts Jesus to his face and offers him all kinds of promises. If only you'll worship me. And the, the final one is Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself off the top of this temple. And according to Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you. You won't even dash your foot against the stone at the bottom. See, Satan misapplied, twisted Psalm 91 to goad Jesus into worshiping him rather than trusting in God's provision. Jesus responds from Deuteronomy 6 and says, Satan, it's also written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. I mean, and if Psalm 91 applies to anyone, literally, it must be Jesus, right? But, but it was Jesus, the, the only one blameless, according to the law. The guy who could literally command a legion of angels on the spot to tend to him, to rescue him, to take him off the cross if necessary. And he didn't. Jesus, the one who was righteous, chose the path of suffering. He was falsely accused. He was beaten and hung on a cross to die. And it's Jesus in Luke 21, towards the end of the gospel of Luke, when he says, some of you, he's talking to his disciples, Jesus says this, some of you they will put to death. And then two verses later, Jesus tells these same disciples, but not a hair of your head will perish. These seem incongruent. How can not one of my hair of my head perish, and yet I'm going to die badly? I think what Jesus is saying and what Psalm 91 is saying is that the protection we have in the shadow of the Almighty means that no matter what happens to us, we will never be ultimately destroyed. Our eternity is secure. See, I, I've seen and heard, and you have too, uh, in miraculous ways, the Lord provide. Like, mind-blowing things the Lord has provided. Tumors that show up in scans don't show up in the next scan with no medical explanation. Here's the, here's the, here's the x-ray I have from my doctor, tumor. And they say, yep, here's the one we just took. There's nothing there. We don't know what to tell you. And at the very same time, 
I have watched with the progress, and maybe you have too, of, the, of, of scan after scan after scan of tumors growing until ultimately they just overtake and the physical body gives out. I've seen a perfectly matched pair of lungs arrive from a donor for transplant. After months of prayer and fasting, at just the right time, God's provision, and I have watched with tears as the lungs of a newborn were just not enough, and he breathed his last. So it's okay to wrestle with how we're supposed to understand and apply Psalm 91. And I think we can answer with some measure of confidence that this is a both and. God's protection, I think, means two things. One, that God in His mercy often miraculously intervenes in the lives of His own and delivers them from physical calamity when others around them are failing. That happens. It's a mercy of God that happens. We've seen it. We testify to it. We praise God for it. And that God in His mercy wills that His children will endure suffering and hardship, but does not allow that suffering to ultimately destroy them in the end. That that kind of evil, of utter destruction, will never befall God's children. And how do we know that it will not destroy us? Jesus suffered, not so that we would not suffer in this life, but Jesus suffered so that in our suffering would not be the end of us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, Paul says, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 presupposes tribulation, distress, persecution, need, danger, violence, and proclaims with confidence that none of these things can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. None of them. This isn't a promise for a pain-free life now. This is a promise that nothing can remove us from God's love and God's protection. We are never outside of the shadow of the Almighty. We never are outside of the shadow of the Almighty. This is the real-time protection that is ours in Christ Jesus. Finally, the third part has me asking a question. So what do I do with this? How now do I live if this is true? If I truly am in the shadow of the Almighty always, how do I live? The final three verses of this psalm are from the perspective of God, Him saying, this is what I'm going to do. The Lord says, I will deliver him. I will protect him. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him, rescue him, honor him. I will satisfy him with long life and show him my salvation. 
And these promises are paired with some because statements. He says, deliverance, I will deliver him because he holds fast to me. Deliverance is tied to holding fast to God. Protection is tied to knowing Him, knowing God's name and trusting in Him. God's answer, I will answer Him, is tied to calling on Him. I will answer Him when He calls to me. And if Satan can turn our eyes from the truth of God's character and God's faithfulness over time, we will indeed drown under our sorrows. My wife and I have talked about this numerous times as we've gone through our own waves of hardship and trial. And I do not know, I do not know how someone bears the weight of cancer or loss or suicide or miscarriage without the anchor of knowing I'm under the shadow of the Almighty. I do not know how people survive without And that's why I think the psalmist starts with the names of God at the beginning. He is these things, don't forget. And at the end of the psalm, with his own words, calls us to hold fast, hang on to these things. But what does it look like practically? I mean, how does this not become, when you leave here, you think, okay, I need to do better at hanging on to God. Try harder to hold him? What are you asking of me? What does it mean to hold fast? What does it mean to know, to trust in His name? What does it mean to call on Him? Here's some, some things I've been wrestling with and, and, and kicking around myself. Holding fast. This is what the, when the Bible speaks of endurance, that we would endure, holding fast is the imagery that comes to mind. There are commands to endure all over the Scriptures. And for us, there is good biblical encouragement to hang on. If a brother or sister is encouraging you in the midst of your pain to just say, hang on, that's a good biblical encouragement. We don't always feel like we can hang on, but I see where that comes from. And our ability to hang on is fueled by the reality, the gospel reality that Jesus Christ holds on to us. We hold fast to God only because He is holding us and will never let go. So holding fast might look like just praying these truths of Psalm 91, saying, I believe this, help me believe it. Inserting your name into the text a little bit. He will deliver Jake from the snare of the fowler. He will deliver Brock from the deadly pestilence. He will cover Charlie with his pinions. And it might just be simply praying, Lord, help me. Where else can I go? Like we just sang. Because nothing's impossible for you. Do not let me go that I might not let you go. It might mean just that. But there's something here to the the encouragement, the urging, the gospel-fueled oomph, command to hold on to Him. Two, to know His name. This is, this is trusting Him, knowing intimately that these things are true, that He is this. This is a trust that speaks truth to lies. 
That no, knowing God isn't, doesn't necessarily minimize the pain or the burn of sin or the hardship, but it directs the flame, the heat that we feel into a forge, not to burn us, but to refine us, to purify us. So what Satan intends for evil, God intends for good. This is the preaching of the truth to ourselves and to one another, the encouragement. This is true of God. This is true of all those that belong to Him. This happens privately. This happens in your community groups. So knowing His name and trusting in Him might look like memorizing these truths. It might look like like saying, I'm going to just memorize. Maybe just start here. I'm going to memorize the first two verses of Psalm 91. I'm going to print them off and stick them on my bathroom mirror or here, free tip, DIY. Uh, Stick it in a plastic baggie and stick it to the inside of your shower. Make sure the baggie's sealed first. Sometimes you can tip it upside down and literally a little bit of water and you can stick stuff to the inside of your shower. Did you know that? Maybe it means that. Maybe it means taping it to the the, the steering wheel of your car, putting these truths in front of you. Sorry, maybe that was too crafty for you. Uh, But putting these truths in front of you to remind yourself these are true. I believe that you are my refuge and my fortress. To know him. And then the last one is to, to call on him. And you see how these are all intertwined. They don't stand alone. God promises, when he calls to me, I will answer him. Did you you read that? Don't miss that. When he calls to me, I will answer him. The God of the universe, for whom nothing is impossible, is concerned about you. So that when you call to him, he answers. Now, his answers aren't always the ones we want, They're not always in the timeline that we ask for. We submit to His will, but He will answer. This is a humble confidence. We acknowledge our need and we call out to the only one who is big enough to do something about it. That's dependence. Holding fast, knowing and trusting God and calling on Him are only possible for the one who is held by and belongs to Christ. It's not fueled primarily by your effort that you hold on strong enough, that you trust uh, tightly enough, that you call on Him passionately enough. No, no. It's not fueled by your strength and your effort. It's only possible for those who are held and known and loved by Christ. Endurance, trust, and dependence are the fruits of a maturing disciple and proof in our weariness that we are loved, that we are held safely under the shadow of an almighty God. Can I give you one last date? December 1st, 2011. My friend Jack Keller lived and died under the shadow of the almighty. Dang it, I said I was going to do this. Jack's parents come here to to River City. They're, They're really good friends. Um, known him for a long time. In 2002, my friend Jack was diagnosed with an incurable lung disease. And if not for a lung transplant in 2004, uh, Jack likely would have died within a number of months because his lung capacity and quality was just deteriorating so rapidly. But he did receive a lung transplant. That same year, 2004, Jack met his wife and they married in 2000. 
six. I was also there then. It was quite the party. And even though doctors said that the, his medications for anti-rejection and the treatment he was uh, taking, that that would prevent them from having children, they were blessed with two boys, 2009 and 2011. Miraculous by any account medically. And as 2011 progressed, as often happens with transplant cases, cancer had developed in Jack. And as valiantly as he fought on December 1st, 2011, Jack closed his eyes here and opened them on the beautiful face of his Savior. Sorry. <clears throat> Hold it together, man. Okay. Um, I had the privilege of walking with Jack as a friend through much of this journey. I, I knew Jack uh, before the, the diagnosis, and I was, I was with a team of guys who prayed and encouraged and fasted and interceded for him, and, and then knew his family and walked with him through much of this. And I sat with him in the fall of 2011 just me and him, and I asked him how he felt about the prospect of leaving behind his family, his parents, his brothers and their wives and their kids, his wife and two boys, and he hated the idea of leaving them behind, the pain that it would cause, the the loss, but he said something else that has affected me ever since, and it was written down and it was part of his eulogy at his funeral. Jack said this, I need to give up what I want. Jesus has asked me to lose what is important to me, to gain what is best for me, and that which will last forever. Jesus needs to be my treasure. He needs to be what I fight and die for. My wife and boys are amazing and important to me, but I have to keep an open hand on them and a closed fist on my Jesus. End quote. See, Ensign John Comer, Jim Elliott, and my friend Jack all rightly understood and believed and applied Psalm 91. In all three cases, the Lord was faithful to keep and fulfill His promise. In every case, whether dying of old age after being spared on, on a beach in war or being speared to death, by hostiles who later would receive the gospel and it would totally transform an entire village. And in fact, the son of one of the slain would build a relationship with the tribal leader of the Wanari people. Or you die far too young, honestly, in my opinion, but gloriously holding on to the hope that Jesus is better and more satisfying than anything else. The hope for us is that we can join with the psalmist in verses 1 and 2 in giving testimony to the refuge that we have in Christ Jesus, that we would proclaim with confidence that we have a hope in Christ as our refuge, that we have a hope that we are under His shadow at all times, in all circumstances, because we are held fast by Christ and that we will hold fast to Him. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me?
Father, I thank you that you are more sure than anything else upon which we would rest our hope. We confess our need for you. There is nowhere else for us to go. You have the words of eternal life. You are our safety and security. And so we run to you. We rely on you. We thank you that the sureness of your love is proven in Christ Jesus. Father, there are various trials Temptations, snares, difficulties, pestilence, realities for us as a people and the people we are connected with, the ripple effect, the spheres of connection that we have where these trials and troubles are a reality is all too real to us even now. So I ask please you would work in us a greater sense of dependence, that we would cry out to you, that we would know the goodness of your name, that we would know the the reality of your present care for us, and that we would seek to be agents of this hopeful reality to every person around us in pain, in trial, in turmoil, that you would keep us from temptation and the snare, and that you would provide for us hope and joy in the midst of trial. That we would with confidence believe that we dwell in the shelter of the Most High God. That we rest in the shadow of the God for whom nothing is impossible. Expand our trust of you and cause our hearts to respond in worship for the mercy displayed in Jesus. Help us now as we come to your table. In Christ's name, amen.